0: For a long time, if you believe as I do, in the deep dangers of climate change, you thought that you had to rely on that moral incentive for our future generations of change. But the economics is changing so dramatically, so fast, that you know, the old world cannot hold out against it. And I actually think these trends are so powerful at the moment. And they are so, by definition, global rather than national. Uh, that this is possibly, possibly the death cries of the nation-state system.
1: Welcome to the eighth live webcast in our series by Invested Wealth and Investment, Markets and Investing in Times of COVID-19. Our previous webcasts have been viewed by clients and colleagues across the globe, and we hope to see many of you again today. So a warm welcome to you as well as to those watching for the first time. I'm Max Richardson, a senior investment director at Investec Wealth and Investment in London. This week's event looks at the accelerating trends towards a digital economy in the time of COVID-19 and the impact on global markets as various traditional industries decline and the established tech firms become stronger. We look back in history to understand technological cycles, discuss the increasingly important role of private capital in the powerful business models now established in the internet age. Importantly, we also look at the current energy transition and whether that has also been accelerated by the pandemic. My guest in this important discussion is James Anderson, partner and portfolio manager at Bailey Gifford. A leading global equity fund manager, his track record network and reputation as a long-term investor and market historian positioned him well for this interesting conversation. Bailey Gifford is the largest institutional investor in Tesla, and under James's guidance has also been an early investor in many of today's leading tech firms, including Amazon, Alibaba, Spotify, Airbnb, and SpaceX. I should note that Investec Wealth and Investment has a long-standing relationship with Bailey Gifford, who manage many of our multi-manager portfolios, including within the World Axis suite of funds. In these out of the ordinary times, Investec looks to partner with our clients to help you navigate a course through uncertainty. We do this by bringing together our own internal knowledge with external experts in their fields. James, welcome. I've been looking forward forward to this conversation because I think we're going to cover some really interesting topics and hopefully going to challenge some of the long-held assumptions and heuristics dominant in markets today. I always leave our conversations feeling energized to think a little differently about the world. So my my goal is for our audience to feel the same today. I'm gonna begin by asking a, a very short question, which is, what is the most important thing that you have learned in the last three months?
0: The most important development for me is, that it's not what's in the news, Max. We can all, at a human level, be deeply concerned with the current environment. But as we sadly know, uh, this isn't market history, but it's history in the abstract. Um, There have been thousands upon thousands of pandemics over the course of human history. Uh, They, are recurring events that sadly we had simply forgotten about but were not unpredictable. You and I have often discussed Max um, Hans Rosling's work in the past. Uh, he, before his very sad and too early death, wrote that pandemics were the number one threat to the secret silent progress of humanity. And I think that's a lesson that's come back to it. So, with that preamble, I would say that when we look back on 2020, the critical development will actually have been a profound turning point, which is much more unusual than a pandemic. That is, an energy transition. Uh, I think we will see 2020 as the beginning of the end of carbon.
1: Well, that that's something that I certainly want to come on to and talk about uh, um, a bit later on because I think you know you're 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 given your experience certainly with Tesla and obviously your research in this area. I think you're very well placed for us to to have a conversation about that. And and actually, I wanted to talk about Hans Rosling a bit later as well. But since you mentioned him, um, you know perhaps I can I can sort of bring that 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 question in in now um, because you know his his his. His book um, was, was, was profound, actually. It really sort of made me stop and think about the way that I view the world. Um, and, you know, as you say, you know, he, he died far too young, so it was, it was very moving. And I'm, so I'm curious about the work that you did with him. And he was renowned, as you say, in his belief in the secret, silent miracle of human progress. That we're hooked on bad news. Um, and that the world is actually a very dynamic place with lots of positive change. It's, it's just that the media tends not to sell much of the good news. Um, so, um, could you just expand a bit more on how, how you know, that work, maybe talk a bit about Factfulness and how the work you did with him and your experience with him shaped the way that you think about the world?
0: It's yes, baby if it actually occurs, though not mentioned by name, in, 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 in the book. Uh, he talks about coming to give a presentation to some of our clients, and a rather rude one of our guests uh, who didn't believe that countries could change or the progress was possible. But I, I think you're right in what you say Underlying It is trying to change your mental attitude around things. And actually, one part of that, uh, is very much tied in to what he wrote about his own experience with the pandemic, which of course was going out to help with the Ebola crisis. Uh, and he gives a very graphic lesson in that of the difference that exponential growth makes to from additive growth. And I think that is not just key at bad times, but also in terms of understanding the type of growth that we've had to get used to. So it is understanding the dynamics of exponential change that really matters. And that secret silent miracle that he talks about is about that underlining TikTok of change that you see um, and how you mustn't interrupt that in a sense by putting arbitrary headlines or arbitrary timeframes amount. It is cumulative. And I think you would agree that that is actually critically important in thinking about investment, too. So, you know, I think almost everything he says has actually not just been intensified by going through this crisis, but actually explains much of the change that in your introduction you talked about in you know the, the underlying hypothesis one needs to have to understand the economics and the corporate sector of, of, of the world we live in
1: so yes, I, I think what we, what you've described there is a, a, an important point that human brains struggle with, and that is this concept of nonlinearity and positive feedback loops, yep. um, which of course is really important in understanding, um, you know, the opportunities around uh, the great companies available at the moment, as well as the threats and the dangers around things like pandemics as well. Um, and I think that brings me quite neatly to, you know, with sticking with this theme of perhaps unconventional thinking um, or challenging traditional thinking, you know, c- can we talk about some of the other lenses through which you view the market. Um, Capturing competitive edge requires thinking in a different way to the crowd or market. I was interested to see that you think about companies more in terms of the cities in which they're based rather than the countries uh, that they exist in, which is certainly the way that traditional stock market participants think about geography. Uh, And I think that's a good example of viewing things differently. Can you describe the cities phenomenon and perhaps um, how investors can incorporate a more diverse um, range of sources or set of mental models into their processes. I,
0: I'm actually genuinely, Max, pleased that you brought up the cities one, because... I think it's such a simple type of example. In many ways, I think people shy away from some of the more complex mental models that we may even come on to. But this isn't a hard one for anybody to understand. We, We all know that the ethos of cities we visit is very profoundly different. And I don't think it should shock us that that feeds through to the workings of the economic system in each area. You know, take the most famous example, the most directly relevant example but one so well-known, I'll just mention it and go on. You know, there are plainly in Silicon Valley direct links with the 1960s counterculture in the way that people think, and that that makes it a very different uh, position from London or or New York. But yeah, it's actually turned out this to be a very fruitful theme for us in, deeply practical ways. Now, if you want, there, there is some academic background between here, which is the work that Jeffrey West at the Santa Fe Institute, which I suspect will come up many times in the, in this conversation, uh, has written about how there is, to link about the previous question, exponential scaling in cities for both good and ill, um, and that that really matters. But one area where we found this actually very helpful is within Europe uh, and that actually there is a complete contrast between the ability of the various both regions and cities to create new companies and those that specialize either in just maintaining the old ones or that get locked in to a historic thesis and The the most compelling one for us in terms of output has actually been Berlin versus the rest of Germany. Um, In Scottish Mortgage, we have three major investments in Berlin. Uh, Delivery Hero, uh, the, the, the most successful European food delivery companies, although it's now mainly outside Europe in business terms. Zalando in fashion retailing online. Uh, and HelloFresh, which has outcompeted its American peer group very substantially in meal delivery at this time. Now, I think it was obvious in all those cases that those companies were marked by a much less hierarchical, much less formalized, much less incremental form of business than that practiced in Munich, Frankfurt, Hamburg, or wherever else. And that cleanly has altered the way these companies have thought about growth and their ability to see outside their own world in turn. You know, Delivery Hero being able to walk away from its German activities, as you know, that's something quite hard for a company to go away from its home base in in, in that way. And, you know, in a sense, this has all gained um, importance and confidence because, you know, Elon Musk came to the same view himself. Uh, you know, he thought it was really important to be able uh, to dive into the German automobile culture, but he very definitely did not want that to be in an area where convention would carry on and you couldn't revolutionize. So hence, the uh, actually outside Berlin and the subsequent developments around design that is there. So I, I think Berlin is actually a very interesting example of a city that had been through immense pain and basically had no corporate sector, but because of its very unique history, could invent a new set of companies, which, you know, to be frank, show much more sign of hope for the future than much of the traditional industry of Germany.
1: And I suppose if we look back through history, then, you know, history is, is we can point to city-states that were incredible Successes like Venice, for example, um, and 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 or and certainly important cities that, that thrive for a long period of time, either because of geography or because of you know various different reasons. Um, and um, uh, you know Jeffrey West's work, I think, points out that whilst humans and most organisms and certainly companies tend to thrive and then die, eventually cities actually are very hard to kill. They tend to last for a very, very long time. So it, it, I thought that was a really interesting um, way and, and link that you, that you made there. No, I,
0: I, absolutely. Um, and whilst I've often thought that Venice would be an intriguing place to run an investment management firm from, the more practical experience I do, because I think it embodies what you say about the or what Jeffrey West says about the continuing nature of cities and their ethos. He spent two years in Amsterdam as a base for what I was doing. And, you know, I found that absolutely intriguing because there you can move from the example of the Dutch East India Company, which by sheer good fortune, well, that's perhaps an exaggeration, but mostly by good fortune, there are astonishing, uh... <laughs> Archives detailing every single thing that went on. Now, here you have the first capitalist company, which basically invented the rules of the game, but that actually is arguably the most successful capitalist company of all time, moral issues outside. You know, the first 40 years of the Dutch East India Company, the annualized return to shareholders was greater than that it has been in Microsoft in the near first 40 years of its history. You know, I, I, I think these these issues are, are profoundly important and they colour what still exists. Now, I think if you look at the companies that are based in Amsterdam um, that have thrived because of the, partly because of that, you can see their heritage. So, you know, Adyen, in terms of revolutionizing what's going on in finance, is still located or is increasingly located in central Amsterdam. Um, booking.com has uh, similarly. And I think you can see this willingness to engage with the world and at the same time accept change that was a deep characteristic. Uh, of Holland in the 17th century. There are then, of course, regional variants of that outside Amsterdam itself, which are, uh, are very intriguing, but I think probably I need to restrain myself from talking about it at this, this juncture.
1: So I, I think that's a you know, a good opportunity for me to now um, move on to talk about about the internet and, and the power of the internet. Um, Particularly a characteristic of internet-enabled companies, which is that they enjoy increasing returns to scale. Traditionally, we've been taught that scale conveys exhaustion rather than acceleration, that as companies grow, they're constrained by limits of land and resources, um, and to expect diminishing returns to scale. But that's not the case with companies like Amazon and Microsoft and many others in that space. Can you describe the, the drivers of that phenomenon? and why it's so important. I think this is
0: an absolutely fundamental discussion that the investment industry needs to have with itself in a much more structured way. So I'm, I, I'm delighted that you brought it up. And I think the way I would approach it is the, the seminal work of this time, Brian Arthur, but still connected with the Santa Fe Institute, wrote about increasing returns to scale, uh, has, was really built off the example of Microsoft and a few others, and thereby dates back a very long time. So what is it that has prevented the stock market seeing the internal logic of what you know, either Microsoft represents, and there was then obviously replicated in many of the companies you mentioned, and why was there not more engagement with what Brian Arthur described as those increasing returns to scale that come from the business model and comes from effectively, as you well know, the idea that it is knowledge that is the key ingredient in that and that its relationship to scale is very different from those companies uh, with physical assets. But, you know, that is still taken as effectively a heretical view uh, that is not accepted by those who pay attention much more uh, to either what's taught in the laughably named modern portfolio theory or uh, advocates of much what's taught in the CFA exam or indeed the, the the deserved but now perhaps waning legend of Warren Buffett within all this. Um, you know, it, it does seem to us that uh, what Brian Arthur talks about and what you describe as increasing returns to scale is absolutely the logic of the way most of the industries of today work. And- and talking to Brian about this, he would say that all the evidence is that more and more of the companies uh, that thrive today, a bigger and bigger part of market capitalization, a bigger and bigger part of our economy, are driven by these values, and that the disruption that causes to the old uh, is. Both frightening and also very, very telling of the, of that narrative.
1: The, the the way that I think about it, in a very sort of simplistic, perhaps slightly ignorant way, is is that in in traditional industry, if you, if you took a you know a, a, a big ticket item like a car, we all know that if you drive it down the road from the showroom, that it, it diminishes in value immediately. Um, whereas products that are on that, that Amazon, you know. Um, have for example the more they're used the the more valuable they become because of the data and the 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 way that they can then change and improve the algorithms that are used be that in search with google or or e-commerce um by amazon just as as, as two examples and that that in that's sort of i think a helpful way to think perhaps about um yes or
0: or or perhaps you know perhaps one reason or the We're, uh, though we deeply admire where the way the companies revive, we're not shareholders in Microsoft. But perhaps that makes it, you know, in some ways, an even easier example to to talk about in this context. Which is that, as you as you obviously know, the cost of replicating one piece of software is very marginal. Um, so whilst you know you may have to put this huge effort in the first in research that goes through the p and and hence you accept that the company may lose money at the start, what you're left with is an immensely profitable business in terms of the gross margins on any replication of that. And I think that model does three through, in, as I was trying to say, in some businesses, that in a sense uh, are, are only now coming to prominence, and perhaps helped by, by by the pandemic in that sense. So, in a sense, that network effect implied by it, that ability to set up the systems, etc., also rings very true of the food delivery companies such as Meituan and Delivery Hero that we alluded to before, too. So, you know, I, I think the challenge in this, in this is how many of the businesses of the future, how much of the market capitalization will obey the laws of increasing return to scale, um, versus how much will be, as you say, on the traditional model that Henry Ford would have recognised in, in in what's going going on. And it still seems to me, and this is I really do feel frustrated by this man. So you know, I think somehow people regard this as naive optimism. Um, and hanker back to the days of Ben Graham and Warren Buffett's prime in, in, in thinking about economics. And that's just not logical because it, it does not explain, uh, absolutely, as you and Brian Arthur would say, the outcomes of these industries. Uh, and I, I you know, I, I, I personally feel that somehow... And, you know, I almost turned the question back to you. We blocked the process of learning in stock markets. Now, you know, I I think historically, if anything, stock markets learned too fast, which is what very often created bubbles. And, you know, if you think of the late 1990s, the way that people adapted to a new version of what value was, what growth was, etc. Yes, it was accepted, excessive, but it had a kernel of truth. But what's happened? Was it just that experience? Or somehow have we hardened the limbs of stock market adaptivity? And I, I fear that is what's happened. I think so many people have been brought up and educated to say uh, that we know value always will out. Uh, We know that the risk can be defined as volatility around an index rather than permanent destruction. Uh, And all these ingredients, and they simply have not allowed their brains to observe reality. And you know, I, I have to say that I think that the CFA carries a very, very great burden within this. Because, you know, I think fundamentally it's the most successful middle class trade union in the world and yet it teaches you a set of doctrines which aren't actually exploratory of what goes on in the stock market. Um, you know, once there is a set of nostrums which you have to believe to become qualified, um, doesn't it carry dangers? I, I, I think it
1: does. I uh, Yeah, I, I suspect that that is the nature of paradigm shifts, that, that it takes uh, It takes a long time for people to mentally do that shift, but that when it happens, it happens, it happens quickly. I suppose... One of the fundamental changes, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, about um, the nature of our economy and the evolution of our economy at the moment, is that, the, that historically the economy has been underpinned by, by scarcity. So by, 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 by shelf space in supermarkets, by land, by advertising space, by film and TV programming um but the the well by simply how much physically you could carry out of the store having having purchased it but but the internet is characterized by abundance and ben Thompson writes a lot about yeah this yeah, yeah. This for techery, and about how how uh, amazon has infinite shelf space um, you know, land is therefore no, no no longer the constraint that it was. Netflix allows us to watch any film we want at any time we want. We're not constrained by, um, you know, the BBC putting on a show at a certain time. And and that is a fundamental change that people are experiencing, but perhaps haven't linked to stock market returns yet.
0: I, I, like you, I would cite Ben Thompson as, I think, a, a very good example, which I believe was one of his, was in the progress of, of Procter and Gamble, uh, which, you know, I think both follows his lesson, but also I, I will try and add one one, one element to it too, uh, if I may. So Procter and Gamble, founded in the 1860s, grew double digits each decade until we got to the present decade. Um, it is that lack of control of of, of the available assets, as you say, that the limiting factor. And perhaps the best example of that was the P&G-owned Gillette, you know, which effectively, by the combination of both what you're saying, control of the advertising in the small number of TV experiences that we could have, where you couldn't have a Netflix and no advertising, plus control of the space in the supermarkets was in an astonishing scarcity-giving ability that therefore labeled them the price of raises up all the time. Now, as somebody pointed out, most of the profits of this actually ended up going to Roger Federer rather than actually to to, 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 to but that doesn't really matter. But isn't that also another part of this, which I think is having its slight revenge on us at the moment? Um, and, you know, we may well come onto it in a different guise. But, you know, effectively, scarcity has also been imposed on many people in Western society because of the level of inequality. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I I think the mental models of how, you know, in some of the writers about imperialism, like Hobson went on about this, is also a counteraction. And I think we have these joint trends. We have the internet providing huge potential supply, but we have... The way the, the economics of the system have been run at state levels has been limiting the number of people who have this disposable income. Uh, and, you, you know, we can come back to whether that part of it will also change.
1: So I think taking that a step further and th- just talking about how stock markets think and, and, and learning as well. I I want to ask you how important it is to be a historian to be a successful investor. We've talked a little bit about history already. Um, And I don't just mean a historian of of economic events in isolation, you know, becoming an expert on, on, on the Great Depression, for example. But I'm fascinated by the concept of technological cycles or revolutions and how they've played out in the past. Um, From the industrial revolution to the mass production era with the adoption of electricity, of course, now we're in the information technology age. Are there lessons from previous long technology cycles that can help us to better understand where we are in this cycle and what's required to understand the current paradigm shift a bit better?
0: I I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a a danger for me here in that I'm at least a a semi-trained historian, um, so I would have biases in these directions, but, you know, I think what you're saying has certainly been a, a deep help to us, even if it mustn't be allowed to become the sole mental model. Um, you know I am constantly surprised that, in that sense that that that's no more recognised because the dimensions of change rather than that we live in a moment which is so often what's presented to you in day to day commentary of the markets is there and you know in that sphere again, uh, I would say that trying not to rely on our own knowledge but to talk to people who are way cleverer way more steeped in deep historical and technological um, knowledge about this, it is really important to investors. So, you know, I mentioned in this context to two people. Uh, the first one would be, because it puts in a really long-term kind context, which is particularly important for the energy issues, I think, involved. Ian Morris, uh, British archaeologist by start, who then made his way to Stanford. And wrote a book that I suspect you know of called Why the West Rules for Now, uh, which introduced many of these themes of deep change and how we need to think of them. But more recently in a series of lectures, uh wrote one called uh, gosh, I'm gonna get the name of it wrong, but of foragers, fossil fuels, etc. Um uh, um and forages, farmers, and fossil fuels. Um, and, and in that, he's pointing out just how rare these structural changes in energy are and how they influence our values um, and, and what one needs to read from that. The other one, perhaps a, a more predictable one, but nonetheless very important from, from, from I think, just basic understanding, uh, Carlotta Perez um, uh, technological revolutions and financial capital. It's uh, written several um, years ago, but uh, does describe precisely the links that there are between the workings of the stock market and how you generate change. Uh, that at times bubbles can actually be useful, but as she says, you don't get bubbles when you want, need bubbles. Um, and at the same time, Uh, that you have to move on as in a sense as I was trying to allude to from this existing um, current terrible danger we're in that we have these deep technologies but the future is so unevenly distributed that the bulk of the populace does not benefit from them Um, and you know she would see that moving on from it being an elite who benefits to the whole population, that build-out period is being absolutely what you need for a golden age. Uh, I've been talking to her quite a lot uh, in the last three months, and you know, I, I, your, your viewers might be interested. She is increasingly confident that the old has become so unsustainable that actually change is going to happen in a beneficial and potentially golden age fashion at this juncture, although the next few months will be absolutely critical in whether we get there.
1: So so I think that's a really you, you've addressed the point, I think, I think perfectly because. Um, she she talks of when in in that book she writes about different phases of technological revolutions and there's the eruption phase which I guess in this cycle would have been from the late seventies through the eighties the and then of course we had the the frenzy stage which was late nineties early two thousand which was when you know, it was a time that we now associate and call uh, the the tech bubble and the bursting of that bubble and, and, and I think. Yeah. Many investors, going back to you know, market psychology and experience and learning, many investors were scarred by that experience, but perhaps don't appreciate that it was a necessary phase in this cycle to allow us to do what we're doing today. You know, the reality is that the, many of the businesses that sunk the fibre into the ground that allow the internet to function the way that it does went out of business. But it was a, an, a, an amalgamation of technology and financial capital that is common and also necessary for then the later stages of the cycle to play out. And perhaps we can bring that to life by talking about you know, the likes of Amazon, Apple, Google, uh, Netflix, the Fang stocks who now are. You know, they, they emerged through the early 2000s yes. to benefit from that investment and to now dominate.
0: Yeah, I mean, not everything he says or does that I would approve of, but I think, you know, Peter Thiel actually captured this extremely well in Zero to One, that, you know, the late 90s were both a peak of stupidity and a peak of absolute clarity uh, about what needs to be done. And there is something very strange, and almost refers back to history, I can't remember whether I've said this to you before, but there are so many books written about that era, that stop somewhere around 2003. And don't do what you're saying at, at, at all of, you know, we were cre- we in that period had created, partly through or above all, uh, the foundations on which could later build, and the fact that, you know, actually, if you'd held a basket of stocks from the late 1990s, uh, as long as they include some of the winners you talk to now, it's not done badly. After all, the NASDAQ is on the level it was then. You know, that's very different from, from the great bubbles of the past that you know, either you never get back to, like the Japanese stock market, or you know, it takes literally centuries to get there. Um, so you know, and, and there's a very peculiar narrative that's been written that somehow, the world stopped and stock market stopped and economic progress stopped around 2003 What well, you can tell this morality story of you know it having been a terrible and evil bubble
1: and and I, I think that that's a, a great intro to the next sort of concept or question that I've got which is um around the Hendrik Bessenbinder data yeah and I was I was surprised to discover that stock market returns are overwhelmingly driven by a small number of exceptional companies that drive long-term wealth creation. Um, I think, you know, going back to our, our goal at the beginning of the conversation to perhaps challenge some of the, um, the, the assumptions in markets at the moment, that certainly does, um, that the majority of stocks since 1926 in the US have lifetime buy and hold returns less than one month treasuries. Um, now, Henry Bessenbinder based at Arizona State University. I know you're familiar with his work. How, how has it shaped the way that you approach investing today?
0: Oh, a very, very great deal, Max. But <laughs> I don't mean this to sound in any way arrogant because it, it, it's really not meant that way because we were looking for an explanation. Because what happened first was that we kept noticing, almost regardless of what type of portfolio they were, how embracing of extremities they were, that um, so your performance was always dominated by the top three to five stocks. Nothing else really mattered, it did all even out. And so we went looking for something to explain this, and that's when we first came across Henry Bessembinder's work. And We have done a lot with him since. But I think almost the challenge is even greater than the way you described it, large though that is in itself. So I could great sacrifice one year of taking myself out of Edinburgh in early March and going to uh, Arizona State to, 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 to visit him. And what he was emphasizing was effectively at one level that if this had been true in the past, how much more true it's going to be in the future for all the reasons you've eloquently described already because you know that increasing returns to scale plays into that. But that also, it makes the task of fund management fundamentally different from what people believe it is. All we should be doing, if you think you can aspire to any skill in this area, is trying to seek exposure to those very small number of winners. Now, he would absolutely say, if you don't think you can claim any skill in that, you ought to end up buying the index fund and going to Vanguard um, rather than anything else. But that if you think you have good skill, you should confine yourself to those companies that have the possibility of those type of exponential terms. Because even owning one of them uh, will transform the fortunes of your clients and he then goes deeper and says look I can't prove this but that he thinks there are defining characteristics of those sets of companies that you ought effectively to use as a quality of screen in what you're doing now those are uh, outcomes and, and validations that I think fit in absolutely with what you've been saying so he thinks the single most important starting point is that you should have an unlimited, if you like, total addressable market, uh, a modern phrase for, for something that's always existed, and that that shouldn't be either definable nor defined. And that's always taken me back to one of my favorite Jeff Bezos insights was that, you know, at the start of Amazon, he said, look, there's this weirdness about our business that everything we use gets better and cheaper, usually around 40, 50 per annum. And then paused and said, I don't know where this takes us, but it's going to be very exciting. And having that willingness to envisage that sense of opportunities rather than plan is to Professor Bessenbinder and something we've tried to embrace incredibly important. You know, you can't define it in terms of borders. And he would say that was absolutely true back in history. The second part of this, which I I think one mustn't fall into mere great-man fallacies or great-woman fallacies about this, but Professor Bessemelli would very much say that it's about understanding the founders, the families, and the cultures that they build. And again, that that is a much more qualitative task than what most fund managers spend their days engaging in and looking at financial analysis. One of our clients once said um, that they thought what was unusual about us uh, we so we spend more time on Word than we do on Excel and I actually thought that was quite a good lead in to doing it. It also is to go tie it back into something we were talking about a few minutes ago, a complete reversal of what's been thought to be investment and what again is encapsulated by warren buffett so if buffett says that rule one is don't lose money and rule two is don't forget rule one i think that that's completely wrong and i think it's wrong for the reasons that bezos yet again has explained that you know success in a business is not like success in sports uh, as he says, you know, you can hit a home run in baseball. You get four runs. You hit a home run in, in in business, and you make a thousand times your money at least. And therefore, you should accept failures because failures don't matter as long as you're having winning. Or if, to, to, to the last attempt to, to try and elucidate that, sometimes Professor Besenbinder puts up his findings and asks people, you know, what these outcomes describe, and the answer that comes back is that these are venture capital returns, when in fact they're public stock market returns. Uh, And I think we have to accept that that is what it's about. And we shouldn't, you know, too often, almost always a client first asks me about something that's gone wrong. That's not a very helpful (laughs) attitude of mine.
1: I think that's right I mean because it it misses the asymmetry in stock market returns. Exactly. Which which again our brains are not built brilliantly to understand. We we focus, you know, Kahneman talks about our our sensitivity to losses being far far greater than our appreciation of gains when, you know, the downside in the stock market is limited to what you put in, which is important, but clearly your upside is potentially infinite. So um I I would I would agree with that and um, and
0: I think that yeah, that, that's, that's right. You know, to go so, sorry to interrupt but, you, know, I think okay. that's again one of the points where I worry about people who are being educated, because people are fundamentally being told that returns are like a standard Gaussian curve. They are not. And that destroys so much of the underlying theory and practice and I think compels the way people spend their days.
1: Yeah. We, we focus too much on the base case and not on the, the outlier
0: potential or the potential. Well, n- not just on the outlier potential, but because of what you said there, Max, about the return structure, um, we, we focus too much on either the base case or the downside for the psychological reasons you're, you're being talked about. One thing that we've tried to factor in is that we make all conversations about investing have 20 minutes at the start where all you're, all you're allowed to be is optimistic. Um, and, you know, I do think that we live in this terrible debating culture where people lock themselves in to thinking it's terribly clever to destroy an argument. It's not. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think this has been captured very well by Michael Moritz, who, you know, when talking about the experience of being a venture capitalist with Google, said, um, you know, one, the hardest thing is to understand how great a great company can be. And actually, if I look back at our research, we still fail in that. And we still ought to be able to get better at that. You know, I um, I think in Amazon, some degrees, it was easier because Bezos was so obviously looking for the extremities himself. But if I look, for instance, at Tencent, our first well, they were great in the sense that we decided to buy the company, but we never remotely, never remotely imagined what has happened. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that was always going to happen, or that was the only outcome, but I think that um, creative imagination around envisioning what could lead to that outsized upside is a much more important part of investment than people tend to think.
1: I wasn't going to bring this in, but I think it's a good point, uh, opportunity to do so, which is compared to compare two seemingly similar companies in different geographies, that being Amazon and Alibaba, um, both. Have uh, large e-commerce businesses, both have large, large and fast-growing um, cloud computing businesses as well uh, as well as other kind of you know other parts of their businesses, including um, you know financial services as well increasingly. Uh, and so sometimes I think investors put them in the same bracket and think the opportunity with each is perhaps the same, but I suspect it's not. Perhaps you could provide or just highlight some of the nuance between those two seemingly um, similar companies?
0: Well, the first one that I, I do think is actually, I am sorry to be cussed, I'm going to start with a, in a sense, similarity, but it's also a difference, and I, I hope a, a, a useful one to, to, to think about. So, following on from the best blind points, you need a set of founders that build a distinctive culture. Now. I think that both those companies absolutely have that, and I don't think most people would quarrel with that as a, as a view. But the culture that has been built is profoundly different. Um, Bezos has found people both in his like mind, Jeff Wilkie, Andy Jassy, etc., but fundamentally has imposed a structure on Amazon, imposed maybe a, a to a harsher world, where you are the culture encourages you to take risks. So, you know, most famously, for instance, the two-pizza principle, um, that you can only have that small number of people who can eat even an American-style pizza and make a decision because otherwise you will get negativity. So you need the enthusiasm. Now, Alibaba, I think, interestingly enough, is more about the partnership culture. They spent a long time explaining to us and they were rather positive they needed to explain it since Peter Griffin is a partnership too. It wasn't the public. that meant that they could always move on generationally uh, and I had a very interesting conversation with Joe Josiah at Barbara about this who said that he thought Amazon was the sole exception because of Jeff's fertility of mind in it. uncanny sense of continuing ambition but that if you are Alibaba you constantly hand on to the next generation and that for him and Jack Maher etc that's what you ought to do and that that's how you stimulate uh, the new sense of mind because you're common owners of the company but um, you have uh, a new generation and I think that then leads on to some of the differences so if you look at the new leadership of Alibaba as a company, they are people in many cases who've been weaned on the deep importance of financial um, and of revolutionizing finance. Now, part of that is because you know Chinese banks, etc., were not very well equipped for the modern age. But it is incredibly striking um, how much more important that is Uh, to the Chinese Big Two than it is to their American peer groups. And I think thereby, you know, your very narratives and experiences inside the company combined with the domestic reality can take you in incredibly different directions. Um, and, you know, equally on the other side, the software industry, certainly the enterprise level is so much more significant in America that although I think it will gradually cloud in cloud terms um, in, in China, that is not the current reality of the situation. And then some comparisons between uh, AWS and Alibaba Cloud um, may not be helpful, so I think you do end up in very different places. But you know, I, I think the consequences of that will be huge over the next twenty years, as we think which next, which of the next industries to be to, to be truly changed and disrupted.
1: And of course, that's a good opportunity to switch perhaps from listed markets to private capital, um, because digital or companies involved in the digital economy seem to require a less capital than those in the traditional economy. Uh, and are waiting much longer to raise capital too. Amazon famously listed, um, I think, at a valuation of around six hundred million dollars. Uh, Facebook, um, years later, waited till it was a, worth hundred billion dollars before it listed. Um, so, and, and you're active in, in in private markets as well as in, in listed markets. So, what, what is the role of private capital in the future? Um, um, should we be comforted by the fact that many of the large digital winners are now big enough actually to qualify if they were listed for the major listed indices?
0: I mean, th- this has been one of the most rewarding, surprising, and I'll to use the word thrilling experiences over the last five or six years from us. In the you know, how much more we've embraced what's going on and got access to what's going on in private markets. And I think that quite a lot has changed and evolved for us and the overall industry over that period of time. Now, your comment about not needing capital was absolutely right about how they started and, you know, push it to a greater extreme. I, I think we both know that Zuckerberg said that, you know, he would might well never have gone public if he'd been able to, uh, instead of buying servers, rent time on AWS, because he was buying servers that he needed the, 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 the money for. And there was a whole generation. And there are still some companies that are like that, you know, Byte Dance being a good, parent of TikTok being a good example and one that we own of that at the moment but I actually Max think that this has morphed into something quite different. I think it has morphed into being a situation where actually if you want to raise large amounts of capital, large amounts of patient capital to build either in uh the not much capital needed but still more in, in companies closer to the capital requirements of traditional industry you do it better in private markets and you can do it more easily um, so you know I, i'd cite a few bits of evidence uh, around this uh, i'd cite the 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 whole uh development which is going to be absolutely critical from here of renewable energy, battery technology and the like in this light. Uh, We are currently talking to a large number of companies with extreme ambitions in this area uh, who need capital. To build factories and to do the procurement, you know, this is big money capital, and you know, I think you also see that in the reverse of why Musk wanted to take Tesla private. It's because building companies in public markets is incredibly difficult. Capital markets don't function as they did in in the Holland of Amsterdam of the seventeenth century. They're about extracting money, It's extracting dividends, share buybacks, etc., mm-hmm. um, rather than creating. And I had, you know, pushed this to an extreme. Very interesting um, discussion with Andrew Lowe uh, of MIT, who spends a lot of his time on healthcare innovation. And his view was that actually one of the big problems about healthcare innovation was that there's a history. Of biotechnology companies going public very young and when they still need capital, and that this is actually very, very dangerous compared with the industries we've been talking about because they then get trapped in the public markets phenomenon of quarterly numbers and having to concentrate on one, one project rather than taking the overall platform approach that they ought to be. So, you know, I would push this a lot further that I think it's gone from being these companies didn't need capital. Too many of them now need lots of capital but get it better and from better people. I mean, wouldn't you rather have Anderson Horowitz and Sequoia and Bill Gurley and people as your shareholders rather than many of the public markets? None of us, of course, would dream of mentioning the the people we wouldn't want on the shareholder list. But, you know, I, I, I think you are better backed in these areas. And I think there is a very real chance that in 20 years' time, all innovation effect be done in the private markets and you know it will only be when you come out at the end of this tunnel and people want to realize it in some form um, will be when companies are totally mature and not very interesting so you know my view would be that over the next generations this may get much more acute rather than it being simply something that's happened for a few years.
1: So, so let's talk about energy. The, the fossil fuel sector Seems to be gradually accepting that the transition towards cleaner sources of energy has been accelerated by the pandemic, and is beginning to put through significant impairments. We've seen this week yep. a major oil integrated oil company impair its fossil fuel assets, uh, lower its long-term assumptions for the oil price. Typically, energy transitions take decades, uh, multiple decades, to play out. But could this transition be an exception to that rule? how close could we be to a greener future and the disruption perhaps as you've alluded to before of the fossil fuel industry?
0: I think the physical building of the infrastructure will still take um, a decade or two would be my, my mind's projection of it but I, I've always felt wary that people therefore say it's not a stock market issue because you know in that sense the stock market is, is at least good about preempting and noticing advance. And as you say, we're now getting these very concrete symbols from uh, the old. I I though I'm intrigued at uh, two elements of this. Firstly, again, why uh, all the academic and scientific and practical wisdom was telling us this was going to happen, yet people didn't take it seriously for a very long period of time. Um, now, when we started paying a lot of attention to this area close to a decade ago, and you know, we were probably rather too early, um, but, you know, two or three years too early, and, you know, back a like that, we've been a shareholder of Tesla since 2013, uh, it seemed to us that these trends were very firmly in place. Um, at that point, we surmised that the whole gamut of solar, wind, batteries, storage, etc., was having a learning rate of somewhere between fifteen and twenty-five percent per annum, uh, which is what is displayed already. Um, as you're you're certainly well aware yourself, one would think that as more capital got applied, that learning speed ought, at any rate, to be replicated. Probably should be improved. But the recent data is really pretty amazing on this front. Um, we are in solar in particular now talking of learning rates of close to 40 percent now that gets you there um very quickly and may indeed accelerate what you're talking about here but i'd also say there's isn't there a question of possibilities and probabilities here. I mean, it seems to me that both the practical experience and the academic one, again, we spent a lot of time with the Santa Fe uh, in, uh, Institute's um, in, insights into this, and particularly a lady called Jessica Transchek, has written, written a lot about this. Um, you know. What probability confidence level would you put on those? I think when we started, we sort of thought, well, if you could do it the 15-25% range, we've got a 75% chance. Don't know when this therefore uproots the world, but it will at some point. I think given that we've had 10 more years of experience of it, we know it's accelerating, we know the capital availability is there, we know the plans of the companies involved. Um, you know, Isn't this above a 90% probability of happening? Now, that seems to me incredibly advantageous from an investor's point of view and incredibly hopeful for the world, rather more importantly. You know, as you well know, most investing bets are at best 55-45 decisions. If you've got a 90% plus probability of something really significant happening, that seems fantastic from from our point of view. Um, So, you know, our, our confidence that this is happening has become a great deal stronger Uh, and you know again we're sort of puzzled as to why people find it so difficult to adapt to it Um, Yeah. yeah and I think it will absolutely dominate our lives and you know again to go back to Ian Morris it's not just the direct effects. The whole nature of our society is likely to change. You know, he talks in terms of could cities be a hundred million because of this. On the other hand, it could go the other direction, um, and because power grids will be so much more distributed, you know, you may just be taking the battery power out of your Tesla. Um, you know, can it change the nature of society? I mean, I don't again think we know precisely how it will, but I think the dimensions of this go a long way beyond you know BP writing off a few things and the value of Tesla being um, higher than other car companies.
1: It strikes me that the opportunity, that the shift is happening, it's happening perhaps quicker than many people thought it would and that there are clear opportunities, perhaps with higher probabilities than we're used to, but clear dangers as well for traditional industries exposed uh, as well. I'd like to finish, if I I may, with a question from one of our clients, um, which is as follows. Administrations like Trump in the US and Johnson in the UK seem to indicate a reversal of a long-standing global trend towards globalisation. The advent of COVID-19 has only exaggerated and magnified this trend. How do you reconcile the acceleration of digitization with what appears to be a trend away from globalisation, or is it just an anomaly?
0: Well, firstly, we've accepted for a good 18 months now that the rift between China and America uh, is very deep not going away and will reverse, as your question implies, globalization, you will have two spheres of influence, you know, to in the terms that we've been talking about. Instead of there being an ultimate battle between Alibaba and Amazon for dominance of the e-commerce world, they'll each have their spheres of influence. Um, and, you know, I think they're deeply sad, um, but I don't think that's going away. And that's well beyond Trump, if my reading of the American defense and foreign policy establishment is, is anywhere near correct. Um, I don't actually think, though, that they can prevent it. And, you know, I don't know whether the politics, therefore, change around or not. You know, I, I would link it back to what we've just been discussing about energy, Max. You know, for a long time, if you believe, as I do, in the deep dangers of climate change, you thought that you had to rely on that moral incentive for our future generations of change. But the economics is changing so dramatically, so fast, that the old world cannot hold out against it. And I actually think these trends are so powerful at the moment. And they are so, by definition, global rather than national, uh, that this is possibly, possibly the death cries of the nation-state system. Um, you know, inevitably, when you have death cries, as with the Confederacy, you get people who shout very loudly in defence of the old, but I'm not sure it's going to change the world. So you know, I think lots of struggle, but I'm not pessimistic about where this ends up, either because of the economics or because of the eventual effects on our society and the politics or. or of these um, deeply encouraging economic developments.
1: Yeah, I think to bring this back to Hans Rosling, we 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 end on a, a message perhaps of hope rather than of despair, despite all that's going on, which is important to 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 bear in mind. Given again the asymmetries of stock market returns, and to to focus on on the positives in the world. James, I'm enormously grateful to you for, for your time today and for joining me for what's been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure that we have achieved our goal of, of allowing our audience to, to leave perhaps um, thinking a little differently about the world um, and look forward to speaking again soon.
0: Thanks for your time. Enjoyed it. Bye. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation.
1: Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorized financial services provider and member of the JSC.